What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I'm not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sun on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning's hush, I am the swift uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. Do not stand at my grave and weep by Mary Elizabeth Fry. If you've ever visited Colorado, or if you're lucky enough to live here, then you know it's an outdoor enthusiast's playground. Hiking, biking, skiing, the list goes on and on. But there's another side to the Centennial State that most people will never see. It's a side that's a little darker, a little more sinister, and a little bit strange. Welcome to Strange Colorado. If you're familiar with the town of Fort Collins, Colorado, then you're probably also familiar with the fact that it is haunted. As most historical Colorado towns are, a lot of sketchy stuff happened back in the day, still happens, but especially back in frontier times. And Fort Collins was definitely no exception. But the stories we're gonna focus on today revolve around the history of the land, like we always do, and also one specific and very infamous murder that centralized around buildings like the old firehouse and now what is known as the Elizabeth Hotel. Fort Collins is the fourth largest city in Colorado, and it's really the northernmost city of note in our state just before you hit the Wyoming border. But it's managed to hang on to its quaint historic feel throughout the years, which is what makes it so special. With a population of around 200,000, this ever-growing town can't be missed if you're traveling along the I-25 corridor. It also happens to be home to Colorado State University, and I can almost hear the Go Rams shouts from here. But truly, the town is one of the gems of the Front Range. But before Fort Collins was Fort Collins, it was known as the Cache Valley and the center for the Northern Arapaho people. In the mid 1800s, as white settlers began streaming into the area, an Arapaho boy named, and I'm gonna do my best, Tina Kuhu became separated from his people. 
and was essentially found and adopted by a white fur trapper who stumbled across him on one of his expeditions. He spent the following seven years living with this fur trapper and attending school in St. Louis, where he was taught about the English language and the culture of the expanding now United States. He also accompanied his adoptive father named Thomas Fitzpatrick on fur trapping expeditions whenever he went. And it was on one of these expeditions that the now 15 year old boy was recognized by his birth mother and returned to his tribe. There's not a whole lot surrounding how this went down or his story, but I can't imagine that that would have been an easy transition. I mean, this kid went through a lot of change and culture shock at very formative years of his life. But he seemed to adjust really well. He was dubbed by his people the Arapaho American due to his new and in-depth knowledge of the world of the white man. He worked as an interpreter, translator, and peacekeeper for his tribe as the settlers encroached more and more frequently into their territory. He also went on to help guide a couple of expeditions being made into the Rocky Mountains. He was kind of the go-to native that the white settlers got into contact with if they needed anything because he was really the one that was most fluent in English and the easiest to communicate with. He eventually went on to become the leader of a band of Arapaho that were located near where present day Fort Collins is located. Although they tended to travel all over the Western territories and through several states. He got along well with the new settlers and he even helped his people find employment on their farms and ranches once they lost access to their tribal hunting grounds. Following the unthinkable wholesale slaughter at the Sand Creek Massacre, where 200 plus Arapaho and Cheyenne were murdered by U.S. military forces in cold blood, Friday lost many of his people to continued attacks by the U.S. Army, disease, and starvation. Their world was shrinking faster and faster, and they were losing ground, they were losing their culture, and now they were losing their lives. They were continually bullied out of their homes and their tribal lands and being pushed towards reservations. But Friday, ever the peace-loving leader, tried his best to get a reservation established for his people, the Northern Arapaho, in Colorado or Wyoming. All he wanted was for them to be able to settle in their ancestral lands in some capacity. But as I'm sure you can imagine, there weren't many concessions being made by the military. And the Northern Arapaho people ended up having to make a choice between existing reservations that were already filled with other tribes. They eventually chose to settle on the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming because it was still in their home territory. Although this reservation was already inhabited by their traditional enemies, the Shoshone people. To them, it was still better than being forced from their native lands. Even though they had settled at Wind River, Friday never gave up hope trying to establish a reservation for the Northern Arapaho. 
It was very important for him that his people maintain their culture and their traditions as each tribe had their only of doing things in their own beliefs. He even went so far as to make trips to Washington and he lobbied President Hayes. Nothing, unfortunately, ever came of it. Friday ended up dying on the Wind River Reservation in 1881. Now, does this history have anything to do with the stories we're gonna talk about today? No, not necessarily. But as you know, if you've listened to any other episodes, I feel it's very important to know about the land you're standing on and who stood there before you. Don't you think? But let's go ahead and back this history train up to the covered wagons rolling into the area and put our settler lenses on. Fort Collins was first established in 1864 as an outpost for the U.S. Army. And given the story we just talked about, you probably have a pretty good idea of why they wanted an outpost there to manage the relations with the native people, AKA keep them in line. This outpost was built where an encampment called Camp Collins had been temporarily set up in order to protect the Overland Trail from attacks by the natives who were retaliating after the Sand Creek Massacre in the mid 1860s. I actually cover the story of the Overland Trail, which is part of the Oregon Trail that came down through Colorado in a previous episode, if you wanna check that out. The first school and church opened in 1866 as a town began to spring up around the protection of the fort. In 1872, the first true influx of settlers arrived in response to an agricultural colony being established in that area. The town saw some early drama as the newbies and the OG settlers did not see eye to eye, but it continued to grow and the town was eventually incorporated in 1873. The 1880s would see construction begin on the beautiful stone buildings that still exist in Old Town Fort Collins today. And this area is the focus of our story. We're going to center around what is now known as the Elizabeth Hotel, which is a new hotel, and the old firehouse, which now exists as one of the coolest bookstores I've ever seen in my life. So if you're ever in the area, go check them out. And also the alley behind it. Now at first glance, Main Street Fort Collins and the old firehouse, which is kind of the crown jewel, I think, of the downtown area there, isn't creepy or ominous looking in any way. It's gorgeous and historic and maybe a little bit familiar, especially if you've ever visited Anaheim, California, a little place called Disneyland. This is where we take a hard left and go off on a tangent, but just Stay with me, I promise it's interesting. At least it is to me. We're going to fast forward a little bit for our tangent to 1951. A local Fort Collins man named Harper Goff, who was the son of a family that owned a local newspaper there in town, struck up a conversation with a stranger while he was on vacation in England. They had both stopped to admire a miniature train display in a shop and they got to talking. 
This stranger shared with Goff that he had plans to create a theme park unlike any other, and he was going to build it in Southern California. Goff immediately recognized the name that this stranger gave him as he was already well known for his animations and cartoons. Goff was really eager to join this man in his plans for the theme park and to help him design it. And from this meeting, Harper Goff embarked on his career working for the one and only Walt Disney as one of the most well-known and original Imagineers for the company. In fact, if you take a stroll down Main Street in Disneyland, you may now recognize many of the buildings are actually replicas of the historic storefronts lining downtown Fort Collins, including the firehouse. The story goes that one day, Walt Disney walked into Goff's office and was admiring photos he had hung up of his family back in Fort Collins. And in the background of the photos were shots of the main street and the old buildings there. Disney was so enthralled with how quaint and perfect the downtown buildings of old Fort Collins looked that he actually traveled to Colorado himself and took notes and photographs of these buildings and completely reworked his original design for Main Street Disneyland. And it became more of a Fort Collins 2.0. Okay, tangent over. There's your fun fact for the day. Now, we're going back again to 1888. Even though Fort Collins was looking more and more like a civilized city as the buildings sprung up and the wooden walkways got replaced with nice flagstone sidewalks, it was still at its heart, very much a frontier town. And there's no better example of frontier justice than the story I'm about to tell you. A little before 1 p.m. on Wednesday, April 4th, 1888, a well-known Fort Collins man named James H. Howe was at home with his wife, Eva, when neighbors and passers-by reported a sudden flurry of activity and screaming and shouting. As they stopped to stare at the house where the noises were coming from, witnesses reported that they saw James and Eva struggling behind the closed screen door inside the house. When Eva suddenly rushed through the screen door in an attempt apparently to flee, but fell on her hands and knees just outside of the door where her husband James caught her and stabbed her in the left side of her neck with his pocket knife. As he held her there by her waist so she couldn't crawl away, he once again stabbed her. Then he let her go and went back inside the house and laid down in his bed. Though mortally wounded with a severed carotid artery and bleeding profusely, Eva managed to struggle to her feet, crying, murder, though her tone was now watery and garbled because of the blood that was pouring from her throat and face. She shuffled out of her front garden gate and made it half a block to the corner of the fence surrounding her property at the corner of Linden and Walnut Street. 
She was losing blood at a rapid pace and attempted to steady herself on the fence corner. But as she half turned in a sort of daze as she was losing consciousness, she collapsed face down on the sidewalk where she died of her wounds. Passersby did witness the stabbing and attempted to call for help, but the day was windy and it drowned out both witnesses and Eva's cries. Seeing that Eva was clearly beyond all help, they decided their focus needed to be on apprehending her killer. A small contingent of men who had been in the area and seen what had happened, including a night watchman, entered the house by both the front and back doors, just in case James attempted to escape. But their extra precautions were unnecessary because they found James still lying on the bed and he was taken into custody without much issue. He reportedly kept repeating, it's too bad and please don't hang me. His hands, face, and shoes were covered in Eva's blood. So what led up to this? The Howells were known as a well-respected family for the most part in the area. They weren't uber wealthy, but they had money and they were well-liked. Apparently, the day before the murder, James beat Eva terribly, so badly that she finally went to the police. Police offered to arrest James, but Eva refused, saying she just wanted someone near the house in case she needed help again. Because Eva had finally decided that enough was enough and she was going to leave her husband. Apparently, just after the birth of their daughter, James began drinking, and his drinking spiraled more and more out of control until for the last two years of James and Eva's marriage, he had been drunk all day, every day, and he was a mean drunk. Even those closest to Eva, her best friends in the whole world, knew nothing of the torment she suffered at home. James beat her regularly. And for some reason, this final beating on April 3rd, the morning before her murder, was the last straw. Eva knew she had to get her and her now five-year-old daughter out. She had plans to move the furniture out of the house that was hers and for her and her daughter to travel to Canada to stay with her parents that day. The morning of the murder, ever the patient and loving, long-suffering wife, she begged James not to go out drinking and to stay home. But of course, he didn't listen. While he was away, Eva began packing, putting her plan into motion. But James returned home sooner than Eva had planned. And he was furious to see that she was leaving him. Typically, the most dangerous time in a domestic violence situation is when the one being abused leaves, attempts to leave, or actually does leave. And that time frame can last for as much as two years after they've actually left the situation. Just because it was 1888 doesn't mean that the abuse and the pattern was any different for Eva, but she was finally trying to get out. And unfortunately, it was already too late. After Eva was killed, and while authorities awaited the arrival of her mother and stepfather, 
Eva's remains were held at Ralph's undertaking establishment, where she was gawked at by hundreds of morbidly curious locals who had heard of the gruesome crime. According to the doctor who was called to examine Eva's body, a Dr. Lee, her injuries included an incised traverse wound across her neck that was about three inches long and one and a half inches deep. She had a cut from the corner of her mouth on the right side that stretched all the way back to the angle of her jaw and was deep enough that it exposed the muscle tissue underneath. Her left hand exhibited what we now know to be defensive wounds that cut across her palm and was so deep that it severed her tendons. Her right hand had a similar wound on the back and she also had a contusion on her right knee, probably from where she fell just outside of her front door. Dr. Lee then had the task of going to check up on James who was being held in the local jail, which was actually located inside of the old firehouse. He reported that James appeared to be coherent but smelled strongly of whiskey. A trial was quickly held and the jury only took a brief period of time to convict James Howe of his wife Eva's murder. The aftermath following his conviction just one day after he killed Eva on the 5th held consequences that I don't think anybody truly expected. That day, after he was convicted, residents of Fort Collins reported noticing groups of men gathered together, whispering feverishly to one another. According to a newspaper article from April 5th, 1888, it was evident that they were organizing for a terrible purpose. That night, on the 5th, at exactly 8 p.m., every light in the entire city suddenly went out. Under the cover of darkness, an organized mob of men, some wearing masks to further conceal their identity, marched towards the jail or the old firehouse. The mob quickly subdued the sheriff and the guards located inside and broke open all of the locks leading to the cells using a hammer and a chisel, including the massive iron door that separated the cell section of the old firehouse from the main area. In just 15 minutes time, they had drug a terrified James Howe from his cell as he begged and cried for mercy. Unmoved by his desperate pleas, the mob led James out into the night air. Just 200 feet away from the old firehouse or the jail, was the new courthouse, which was still under some amount of construction, which left a derrick or a type of crane that was being used to lift huge, heavy flagstones and lower them into the basement of the new courthouse for the flooring. The mob had already thrown a rope with a noose at one end over the top of this derrick. The sight of this gave a new wave of energy and of desperation to James's cries and pleas for mercy. The men secured the noose over the crying man's head, and they gave him a chance to speak any last words he may want to. But all he could manage to say was, think of my little girl, and beg them in God's name not to hang him. 
truly, I think that the time to think of his little girl would have been way before this when he was abusing his wife or even before he murdered her. But anyway, James's terrified begging only whipped the crowd up into further frenzy though. And so the final moment came when the signal was given for the group of men at the other end of the rope to haul as hard as they could, lifting the struggling James up from the ground by his neck at such a rapid pace that one witness said he shot up into the air like a rocket. His wrists and ankles had been bound, and though he struggled against the rope, suffocation came quickly. In just a few minutes, he was finally still. Once it was clear that James was dead, the mob of men silently went their separate ways, leaving James Howe's body strung up behind the courthouse. At about 9.30 p.m., just an hour and a half after the lights had been cut to the entire town, the coroner was informed of the events, and he and some assistants went to cut the body down. James's body was taken to a house on Walnut Street for burial prep. In the wake of the 24 hours of tragedy since Eva's murder, the townspeople were stunned at the events that led up to Eva's and James's death. Both husband and wife had come from excellent families in Fredonia, New York. They had married when Eva was just 15 and James was over 25 years old. That's a whole other issue. Ugh. James had been a skilled millwright and a mechanic and was well established in Fort Collins because of it. Before his addiction got the best of him, friends and acquaintances described James as a gentleman who greatly loved his wife and daughter. And Eva was described as a sweet-natured and forgiving woman. They moved in the best social circles and were well-respected until the last two years of their lives when James's issues with drinking caused them to fall in esteem and in popularity within the Fort Collins community. Their daughter, now left an orphan, went to live with her grandparents, Eva's parents, in Canada. The story of Eva's murder became an example of the evils of alcohol for the growing temperance movement in Fort Collins, though it wouldn't become a dry town officially until 1909, over 20 years later. The Howe home was lifted from its foundation and moved twice over the years to make way for the growing business district in downtown. In the 1950s, it was moved to its current location at 1314 West Myrtle, where it still resembles the property that it originally was. Not much has changed except maybe one of the doors on the front of the house have been boarded over. James Howe was the only confirmed lynching in Fort Collins history. Eva was buried in Grandview Cemetery in Fort Collins, and her well-kept headstone remembers her simply as Beloved Mother. Surprisingly, it's rumored that James was buried right beside Eva, but his grave was left unmarked. The courthouse that was still under construction at the time when James was strung up by the mob behind it has since been torn down, and the newer Larimer County Courthouse now exists on the exact same site. 
The location of the original home where the Howells lived in Fort Collins, as well as the carriage house that was also on the property, has seen a lot of changes over the years and has also had several other tragedies occur in the same location. The property where the original home once stood had since become a car dealership using the carriage house as the garage. One morning, a salesman who worked for the car dealership at the time, for some unknown reason, hung himself from a rafter inside that same garage and was later found by the general manager. Later, once the garage was abandoned, a young man took his life by sitting in a running vehicle inside that garage. His body wasn't found for several days. Given the gruesome history and the tragedies that occurred in this area, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that some weird stuff has been reported. The property beside this garage and old carriage house had been developed later on down the line into what was known as the Armadillo Restaurant, where staff had reported a tall, hostile ghost that liked to hang around the bar and kitchen area, no surprise there, and liked to spend his time glaring menacingly at female employees. An apparition of a woman wearing a white gown was seen frequently in the restrooms there. Witnesses who reported seeing her claimed that she was bleeding from her cheek and her neck and that her white gown was coated in blood. There was also reports of an apparition of a young girl who seemed to be about five years old in that same restroom who would sit on the changing table and stare at the restaurant patrons who entered. But the spookiest part of this little girl's apparition is that she reportedly didn't have any eyes. To me, this definitely sounds like the Howell family members. I don't know why their little girl would still be there as an apparition unless it was just sort of a stamp because her trauma had been so great witnessing her mother's murder and losing both of her parents in one day not to mention the abuse that she witnessed her mother enduring at the hands of her father all those years. The tumble down spooky garage where so many tragedies occurred, as well as the armadillo restaurant that stood on the site where the Howe home originally stood, were both torn down around 2015 to make way for the new Elizabeth Hotel, which was completed in 2017. Now this hotel is new and it's owned by Marriott and it doesn't really report any hauntings or spooky activity. At least that's not the foot that they put forward, if you know what I mean. But I can't imagine that nothing occurs there given the history of the property that it's built on. The place where it's believed James was held in a cell, the old firehouse, is reportedly host to an apparition of a man who watches from the tower. While there's no living person known to be present in the area, it could either be the apparition of a fireman who is still at his post, or it could be James. Glaring out over the town that was his judge, jury, and executioner. I mean, rightfully so, but he still seems to be pretty mad about it. 
eerie feelings and other unexplained occurrences have also occurred in this area, but again, it's not really the headlines that they like to lead with. So what do you think? Do you think that these locations are still haunted, playing host to the memory of a tragedy that shook the entire town and whipped it up into a murderous frenzy? Or do you think they're more like echoes that will forever be stamped on the land there? Whatever you believe, that property and all of Fort Collins has a deep history filled with dark secrets and chilling memories of the cruelties that men are so very capable of, just like most of our state. But nothing leaves a stain quite like that of the murder of Eva Howe. I absolutely believe that their spirits, whether residual or intelligent, exist still in that area today. I just hope that Eva's is at peace. And I also hope that James Howe's spirit is not. I believe he deserves every moment of torment that the afterlife can serve up to him for all of the misery and heartbreak he inflicted on Eva and his daughter in the years leading up to that murder. Eva's murder and James Howe's ghost is definitely not the only spooky tale that Fort Collins has to offer. And maybe on another day, we'll talk about some of the other stories that have led to the hauntings of this unique, historic, and beautiful town. Given the theme of today's episode, if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please call one 800 799-7233. That's the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and it's a good place to start if you want to get help. You can also text START, S-T-A-R-T, to 88788. Sources for today's episode include Fort Collins History Connection, Wikipedia, Ghosts of Fort Collins by Lori and Chris Juzak, Newspapers.com, The Coloradan, NorthernColoradoHistory.com, and an article by Ashley Houston entitled, How Did This Get Here? Thanks for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram at Strange Colorado Podcast. If you have a strange story of your own or an episode suggestion, you can reach me at Strange Colorado Podcast at gmail.com.